In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I telephoned my hairdresser to tell her that I had to visit a parishioner in the hospital before I could come in for my haircut. And I told her I was pretty sure I would be back in time, but I wanted her to know just in case. But it was really very important that I get a haircut because I was preaching today. And without missing a beat, she said, I understand. If you don't like your sermon, you can tell the congregation, don't pay any attention to the sermon, just look at my hair. <laughs> True story, by the way. When I was going through the lessons for this Sunday, I was struck by the reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. It seemed to have my name written on it. In these last few weeks or months, I've found myself sort of restless and not knowing quite which way to go and what to do, a little confused, wanting to do something but not knowing quite what to do. Maybe that's just because I'm older and it doesn't mean anything. But I read the lesson and I thought, boy, that is speaking directly to me. Think about what's happening in the lesson. Babylonia has conquered what remained of what we call the Holy Land and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. They've carted off to Babylon many, if not most, of the bigwigs and movers and shakers, religious leaders like priests and prophets, civil leaders like elders, wealthiest merchants, largest landowners. The rest are simply left behind in Jerusalem, essentially pacified by a lack of leaders. For all, especially those in Babylon, it is a time of fear, humiliation, uncertainty, helplessness, just general discombobulation, and of course, anger, if not rage. When you have time, not during the sermon or during the service, but when you have time when you go home, read Psalm 137. It is a song written in exile, poignant to the end then concluding with pent-up rage that is so bad that the last verses are printed in the prayer book but are never used in public worship. Now, if that doesn't entice you to go home and read it, I don't know what will. <laughs> Jeremiah gave an answer to the, to the exiles in Babylon. They were restless. Something had to be done. This was a time for planning, for plotting, right? Shall we revolt? Shall we assimilate? Shall we escape like Moses and the Hebrews from Egypt? And all Jeremiah could do was write them a letter and say, folks, this is the word of the Lord. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. As an aside, Jeremiah's letter, this passage, is the only place in the Old Testament where the people of God are told to pray for their enemies. They received the letter in Babylon, and can you imagine the response? Jeremiah's got to be kidding, right? Build houses, plant gardens, marry, have children, get your kids married so that you can have grandkids? That's not one of the choices. Stay here as Jews. Don't fight back. Don't escape. Man, we're thinking anywhere but here. But the major point of the story is stability. Actually, Jeremiah was ahead of his time. He was counseling stability, in this case staying put, to a group whose world had, was in upheaval, making them restless to get away from where they were. I say Jeremiah was ahead of his time because I dare say that humans have become more significantly restless since Jeremiah, who was born in the 7th century BC. If that is true, as I think it must be, one reason may be that we have now increased our ability and opportunity to move on to a different place, to a different job, to a different spouse. Another is that our lifespan has increased. The longer we live, the more likely we become tired of the same old, same old. Of course, some of us are far more restless than others, and some far less so. Today's Old Testament is for those among us who are the more restless ones, having difficulty paying attention to the present, wanting to and thinking about moving elsewhere, and never sufficiently satisfied with whatever job we have. Full disclosure, I am satisfied, I'm retired. <laughs> to be sure, restlessness, like almost everything else, is neutral in itself. It's how and to what degree we allow it to govern us that determines whether it enhances our life or not. St. Augustine spoke about restlessness at its best. Restlessness for God implanted deep within our spirit, so much so that nothing in the world can ever fully satisfy us. You have heard his prayer. O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. That's a restlessness that moves us toward God. Another aside, when I first read about genetic scientists claiming to have identified a God gene that triggers human spirituality, I immediately thought to myself, I'll be darned, John Calvin was right. <laughs> and as I was preparing this sermon, I realized the same thing could be said about St. Augustine, a rose by any other name is still a rose. Most people think that monks make vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. 
And yes, probably most of them do. But Benedictine monks do not. Instead, they promise stability of life, conversion of life, meaning change, and obedience. And in writing his rule, St. Benedict recognized that the spiritual life is grounded in stability. And that's why that is the first of the three vows. Accordingly, Benedictine monks were not to move from one monastic order to another. In fact, they were not even to a allowed to move to another Benedictine monastery. Wherever a monastery was located, God was there. And the monk didn't need to go somewhere else to find it. He needed to settle down there and be stable and find God within that place. My wife was raised on a farm outside of Florence, South Carolina. She, her parents, and her two older siblings were all teachers. Her older sister and her husband moved to New York. And I remember my, Miriam's mother saying to me one time, I don't understand why they moved to New York. Anything they need, they can find right here in Florence. Having been raised outside of Chicago and at that time living in the Washington, D.C. area, I could not help but smile. <laughs> then I realized she had not said they can find anything they want but anything they need. And that was right, even though I really did think it was more fun to be in the city. God is present everywhere. God is present in Florence, South Carolina. God is present in the monastery. A monk need not wander from place to place to find him, nor need we. There is, of course, an even deeper dimension of stability in the rule of St. Benedict. That is stability not only of place, but also of people. The monk must learn to love the brothers he has, no matter how difficult, rather than restlessly moving elsewhere to find more tolerable ones. The issue is inside the monk himself, not in the other and he is to remain stable with this set of brothers and learn to love them. Now, we are not monks and nuns, and many of us would give thanks for that. Our lives are more broadly focused than theirs can possibly be. But our hearts, like theirs, are restless for the God who made us. For us is for them. Appropriate stability of life is the foundation of our stability and spiritual lives. As I mentioned at the beginning, the reading from Jeremiah grabbed me because at this point in my life I feel restless and less focused. I hear Jeremiah guiding me to deal with the fragmentation, lack of focus, and dissatisfactions in my life, calling me to stability. Maybe he's calling you too. We have about six weeks to the beginning of the new church year. This may be a good time to seek greater stability in our lives. There is, of course, not only 
the truth of stability which Jeremiah preaches, but also the good fruit that comes from stability. Life in Babylon was not bad for the exiles, if they'd give it a chance. Babylon was a great city. It had a more sophisticated culture than Jerusalem. The exiles were free to move about the city as they wished. To be sure, Babylonian religion posed a threat to their religion, but it actually operated as a challenge to strengthen their national spirit and religious identity. In fact, it was during their 40 or so years in exile in Babylon that what we know today as Judaism began to be born, when Israelites began to be called Jews. The Jews in Babylon followed the Mosaic law ever more closely, practiced circumcision more regularly, and observed the Sabbath more carefully for obvious reasons that was to keep their faith. There was a compilation during this time of significant portions of the Old Testament, the strands of tradition and theology that some of you may remember from Old Testament studies called J, E, D, and P that were woven together into a single narrative. Because the temple in Jerusalem had been the which had been the center of Israelite tradition had been destroyed. A new locus of corporate worship began to develop called the synagogue. There were prayers there that substituted for formerly former ritual sacrifices of the temple. This was also a period of the prophetic writings of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Second Isaiah, among others. It was a very fruitful time in the history of Israel, so much so that Old Testament scholars distinguish between what, have come, what they have called pre-exilic and post-exilic eras. The change occurred in Babylon, a wonderful gift that came by being stable and not restlessly running to another place. God taught me this lesson in my early 20s. As a high schooler, I had been accepted as a postulant for holy orders from the Diocese of Chicago, a very Anglo-Catholic diocese. In my first year of college, I was admitted to Neshota House, the premier Anglo-Catholic seminary of the Episcopal Church. But on opening day of seminary, I was not at Neshota, but for reasons that we need not discuss, I was at the Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria, the polar opposite in churchmanship from Neshota House. And I was absolutely devastated but this was the only way I could get ordained. And after I graduated and began to look back on it, I realized what a blessing it had been that I went to that seminary, even though I thought at first that it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. If you will, I became more integrated into the full faith of the church not just the Anglo-Catholic half, not just the evangelical half, but to the whole 
faith of the church. Uh, symbolic of this, I suppose, is the fact that at that time, which was 1962, I was one of the few priests who could worship equally sincerely at morning prayer at 11 o'clock or at solemn high mass. Most Episcopalians couldn't do that back then. They were either low church or high church, and never the twain did meet. Ever since then, I have learned to rely and expect from God that he is working his purpose out. And so when bad things, really bad things happen, or when things happen that I just think are bad, I look up and say, okay, I just can't see what you're going to bring out of this one. And then I wait to see. Stay where you are, says God. Stability is the key. And I will be active in your presence there. Amen.